morning, Journey. Nice to see you all. My name's Chris. Glad to be with you here in this place on this beautiful day, uh, sharing what I believe Jesus teaches, but also uh, what I believe Jesus has been teaching me for all of us. Uh, A way that we've been talking about what Jesus teaches is we've been moving through a series that we're calling The Kingdom is Like. And what we've been doing is we've been doing our best to enter into this kingdom of God that Jesus preaches, that Jesus enacts, and that Jesus invites us to enter into. And so today's teaching on the kingdom of God is quite frankly hard. Jesus himself says so even. So what we're going to do is we're just going to take a look at the scripture, and then I'll pray for soft hearts to receive a hard word, and we'll dive into the text and let the Holy Spirit guide us and transform us. How does that sound? Sounds good, huh? Okay, we're up for that. Well, I'm going to read Mark 10, 17 through 31. Feel free to follow along, and then we'll pray. Here's how it starts. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, It is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the the gift of family, the gift of community to fill this space together. And God, we pray specifically today for soft hearts to receive this hard word. It's hard because you say it's hard, Lord, but because also we are people who have much. And so my prayer, God, is that you would soften us now 
to receive your words, your challenge, your invitation this morning. We know, God, you are already present. Your Holy Spirit is already inviting us to join you in what it is you have for our lives and for the the kingdom coming in this world. And so let us receive what it is as individuals, but also as a community of people, God. Challenge us, be gentle with us, and reshape our lives into the kingdom lives you have. God, I pray for myself this morning that you would give me your words to speak, that I wouldn't say anything that's not for you or from you, God, and that everything that we do here in this space together would bring you honor and glory, that we would make much of you and raise you up above and worship you with all of our lives. Thank you so much for loving us, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray, amen. So as Dallas Willard says, he says that scribes and expert scholars often would teach by citing others. But Jesus, when he comes, he is in effect saying, just watch me and see that what I say is true. See for yourself, Jesus is saying, that the rule and reign of God has come among ordinary human beings. The presence of Jesus upon earth, both before and after his death and resurrection, means that God's rule is here now. And in this sense, the immediate expectation of the kingdom has been fulfilled. But when we think about the kingdom of God, it's important to remember that God did not start to bring his kingdom into existence through Jesus' presence on earth. That's often what we think, but Jesus' own gospel of the kingdom was not the kingdom that was about to come or had recently come into existence. What Jesus is doing is he's striving to make it clear that his gospel concerned only the new accessibility of the kingdom to humanity through himself. He's saying, pay attention to me and you'll see what this kingdom has always been about. Because in any case, if Jesus had just come announcing the existence of the kingdom, It would have been no more noteworthy or newsworthy to his original hearers than the announcement that Moses had given laws. It just was, yeah, we get it, that's what happens. Or as Dallas Willard reminds us, he says, the gospel of the Old Testament, if you will, was simply our God reigns. And everyone knew that. They already knew him as king. So Jesus now teaching about the kingdom in Mark 10 is doing something that existed all along. It was just dim. We couldn't quite see it. And now in Jesus, what happens is we begin to see it more clearly through himself and we're invited into it. And yet even still, as we see it more clearly, this is a hard teaching to receive. So let's jump back in to the scripture and make our way through it and let the Holy Spirit guide us. So here we are again in Mark 10 at the beginning of this section in verse 17, and this is what we read. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And again, as we enter into this story, please, as I beg us often, don't just look at this as words flattened on a page, but enter into this story. Imagine it happening again. Imagine Jesus walking on this road. Imagine a man coming up to him and kneeling before him and asking these questions. Put yourself here and imagine how you would respond or what it would mean when others respond a certain way. So here's this man and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. 
Only God is good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. So in response to all of this, Jesus is like, you know the commandments, right? And he just gives them the list of the commandments. And if you're familiar with the 10 commandments, this is the section of the commandments that have to do with how one interacts with other people. However, there's something in here that's not like the other. One of these is actually not one of the 10 commandments. It's the reference to not cheat anyone or what's sometimes translated as do not defraud. And it's interesting that it's in this list since it doesn't belong to the 10 commandments. Yet here it is in this place of the commandments, probably taking the place of not coveting. Because in this case, Jesus is interacting with a wealthy person, which at this point in the story, we don't know. We find that out later, but Jesus knows. And he, because he is wealthy, might not covet others' goods But nonetheless, the truth is that he may be likely engaged in defrauding others as a matter of his normal business. Essentially, he might have cheated to become rich. But whatever the case, the response of Jesus in verse 18 just directs this man unambiguously to God. He says, pay attention though to God, the one who is good. So after Jesus lays out the commandments, The man replies, teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. And when you and I hear that, we might be like, what? That's kind of like braggadocious, right? Like, oh, okay, man, all of the commandments since you were young. But I think it's worth noting that that likely the, the early listeners and readers of this wouldn't have seen this man as bragging, but that he's honestly doing whatever he can to follow the commandments that God has set before him and his people. And so it's in light of this that here's what happens next. Verse 21, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Just imagine the scenario again. Jesus tells him the commandments. He says, yeah, I've followed those. I've obeyed those. And then Jesus looks at him intently and he's filled with genuine love for this man. There must have been something rare or admirable in the man. For verse 21 offers us like this tender touch of Jesus saying that Jesus looks straight at the man and loves him. And I don't think that's any different than the way in which God looks at each one of us right now in this place. He looks straight at us and loves us. But you might find this hard to believe that this is the only time in the gospel of Mark that Jesus is specifically said to love someone. It's said said about Jesus this one time. So it is that Jesus loves this man. We know that, but he loves this man enough to tell him the truth about what it is that he serves. So let your heart receive this if Jesus is also speaking to you. He says, there is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. At this point, Mark is making it clear that the demands of discipleship to Jesus go beyond the demands of the law. There's something more apparently that's required of you. 
The ultimate test of obedience then and his willingness to assume the way of discipleship of Jesus is to give up everything that he deems as a treasure. And so it is our call as well. To follow Jesus, to go the way of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus is to give up everything that we deem as treasure. Yet how profoundly ironic is the kingdom of God. Because in the section right before this, Jesus speaks of children and he talks about children who possess nothing and are told that they don't lack anything at all, that the kingdom of God is theirs. In their current state as children, the kingdom of God is theirs, they lack nothing. Yet here is a man who possesses everything and has done everything he's needed to do, yet he still lacks something. Only when he sells all he has or only when he becomes like a vulnerable child will he actually possess everything. The great reversal of Jesus and his kingdom. It's backwards and confounding. In Judaism, almsgiving or the practice of giving money to the, or, or food to the poor is one of the three pillar virtues. But what it does is it necessitates one actually having something to share. And so what Jesus essentially is doing here, it amounts to a rejection of a conventional Jewish virtue that he said, that the, the virtue says it's all right to be wealthy so long as one is also generous. And Jesus, it seems to me, is saying there's a new ethic at play here. There's a new kingdom ethic. And it's not surprising that the young man did not see it coming. And as a result of himself being surprised by it, he walks away sad. He could not receive such a word as that. The bar has just been raised on what being a good or godly person entails, much less what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The young man leaves saddened. He's, he's downtrodden. He's downcast for he had many possessions, but it's only at this point in the story that we find out that that's because he had much. There's never one point in time in which Mark calls this man the rich young ruler like we often know him. But what we do know now is that he was a young man who was in fact loaded and it owned him. And yet even still, before Jesus said this to the man, Mark records that Jesus looked at him and had great genuine love for him. Jesus looks at him with deep love and compassion and offers himself as a substitute for the man's riches. Which is exactly what Jesus offers to all of us. Whatever it is that you deem as treasure in your life, Jesus offers himself as the substitute for that. And then lastly, note this. I find this so interesting. Jesus' command to this man is to go and sell his possessions and give the money to the poor. Essentially, this means that Jesus is asking this young man to relinquish his relationship to his resources twice. The first time, he's got to go and sell them. And so he sells all his resources. Now he's accumulated all of the money for his resources. Now he has to go and relinquish that money again by giving it to the poor. That's an intense call. That's very different than anything that man was expecting. And so after Jesus says this to him and he walks away sad, 
Jesus looked around. And perhaps Jesus looked around to see if his disciples too would walk away. Or maybe if the man might turn back again. But as he looked around, he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I wonder if this young man could hear Jesus say that to his disciples as he walked away. And as he walked away sad, something in him acknowledged that that was true. And after Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, his disciples who he was talking to are amazed. They're awed, they're baffled, right? But Jesus said again to his disciples, he said, dear children, which is just an interesting choice of words in light of what Jesus just taught before this whole interaction. Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Man, can you just imagine all of this playing out? Because while the disciples have likely given up everything to follow Jesus and they they did that intentionally, there has to be a part of them that hopes this will turn out better in the end. That at some point they'll accumulate something of worldly wealth or status or position. They still hope that Jesus will right this whole ship and bring the kingdom in the way that they think the kingdom should come. But Jesus isn't saying If you are rich, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God. He's just saying it's really hard. And for some, the cost of living by kingdom principles is too high to accept. And some walk away. And here we have Jesus painting this picture of a camel in the eye of a needle. The camel is likely one of the largest animals that a a Jewish person in Israel would be able to think of. And an eye of a needle is likely the smallest thing they could imagine. Like the contrast was not lost on them. That that's how hard it was. And the reality of what Jesus is saying to them is that wealth obstructs discipleship. It gets in the way of being a disciple of Jesus. And so Jesus is asking this man and ultimately all who desire to follow him to dethrone what is currently king and make Jesus king. That's the kind of king he is. And that's the kingdom he's announcing. But even as we hear that, I think like just in real life terms, we have to ask like, why would you sell everything you had? Why would you do that? Right, like, like my guess is not many of us as we're like sitting here, we're taking notes and we're like, man, I'm gonna liquidate this asset, this asset, this. Right? That, that's, that's probably not what's happening. Like let's just be honest about that. So that doesn't mean there's nothing here at all, right? But why would someone, why would you sell everything you had? I think it's because there would be a double liberation taking place. The first form of the liberation would be to liberate yourself from your idolatrous relationship to your resources. That would be step one. And the double liberation then comes in also liberating the poor in their need and providing in a place to free them from the traps that poverty has them in. A double liberation takes place when you sell everything you had. And I'll tell you what, that's a hard teaching. The disciples thought so too. Their response in verse 26 is that disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Who could possibly do this? How could this ever happen? 
The disciples for once understand the implication of Jesus rather clearly. And so they ask, who then can be saved? This at last is the right question. The disciples have got to the right question. The disciples and us do not have within themselves the power to do what Jesus asks. It seems impossible, but what it's doing is it's creating the openness to the potential of God. It's opening up a space for God to do what only God can do, which is why Jesus answers like this. Jesus looked at them intently. Again, imagine this all taking place. They're witnessing a really interesting scenario here. And now Jesus is telling them how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. And they go, well, who then can be saved? How is this possible? And Jesus looks at them intently and he says, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God. Which is interesting that this verse shows up in the space that it shows up in here. Because my guess is many of us really like this verse. Right? Like, yeah, everything is possible with God, but we put it on a lot of different life scenarios than one in which we might be asked to give up everything we own, sell it, and give it to the poor. In the context of this story, that is again so much more powerful than just like, yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what it meant. Paul was in prison. He meant he could endure the way of Jesus. So here we have Jesus saying, but with God, everything is possible with God. Jesus indicates that while salvation is impossible by humans, by human effort, it is possible for God to give humanity salvation as a gift. And not just like salvation, the way we hear the word salvation, right? That you will be saved, you know, that sort of thing. But that you will be saved from the things that enslave you. Salvation from the things that keep you from following Jesus with everything you have. The kingdom of God is a gift and the salvation that comes with it is a gift. We have to decide if we'll receive it. And it's at this point then, you may have noticed some silence among the disciples. It's finally time for Peter to speak up. And so in verse 28, Peter began to speak up. And in response to this idea that God can do anything and any, everything's possible with God, Peter's response is, we've given up everything to follow you, he said. And at this point, we notice such a, a, a unique uh, tension or contrast between the, the young rich man and the disciples, the young rich man who would not give up everything, and the disciples who have given up everything. And this reminds us at this point in time that however knuckleheaded and spiritually imperceptive the disciples appear at times in the Gospels, they have made the commitment of true disciples who follow Jesus and they've paid the price to do so. They are very imperfect disciples, yes, but they are real ones nonetheless. And Jesus responds to Peter. He says, yes. Right, you've given up everything to follow me, yes. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news 
will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. You see, discipleship is not just about what it costs us and how much we must sacrifice. That's real and that happens and that's true, right? That's up front. But there's also an abundance on the other side of sacrifice. It just doesn't look like we think it will. I mean, the whole list of what's on the other side, right, a hundred times so, ends with the words, along with persecution. We're like, huh? A hundred times and some persecution on the side. Right, the way of Jesus as we see here again, it's never easy, but it's always worth it and that's what he wants to make clear. That you will in return receive everything you need. It may not be what you thought you needed, but you will in fact receive everything you need. The return is both in the now as you gain all of the family that's listed. And then in the life to come. It's a very ironic alternate investment. Like I'm not very good like thinking in money terms in general, but I'm like, I don't think anybody saw that coming. Give up everything and get a hundred times back, just not what you thought you'd get back, but it's actually better, but you don't know that yet. Like who invests like that, <laughs> right? There's just a, that's, the, that's the reversal backwards way of the kingdom of God. It's actually silly on some level. And then Jesus finishes this whole interaction like this. He says, but many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And that should just send our heads spinning. The final verse deals with the matter of the reversal of status, the great reversal as Eugene Peterson calls it. The reversal of standing and the reversal of human expectations. Many of the first will be last in the kingdom of God and many now considered last and least and lost will be first in the kingdom. What? The great reversal. It's simplicity though, like captures a profound irony of discipleship. The kingdom of God topples our cherished priorities and demands of disciples new priorities. It takes from those who follow Jesus things they would keep and gives to them things they could not imagine. Those who take a stand on their riches, whatever they may be, will actually have nothing to stand on. And those who give up everything, not only possessions, but even people and places and indeed their own lives to follow Jesus, will not simply be compensated for their sacrifices. It's not a one-for-one one exchange, but instead they'll be given a hundred times over with the same of what it is they gave up. And even then in the world to come with eternal life. And yet the practicality of all of it is this, sacrificial generosity hurts. Giving up everything hurts. There is no way around that, but the new relationships our sacrifice forms actually runs deeper. We will be surprised by the extent of the depth of our relationships on the other side of our sacrifice. 
that means then that we have to interact with people in this great reversal. And so it is that Gustavo Gutierrez reminds us and challenges us as we relinquish our relationship with the resources. He asks us this, you say you care about the poor, then tell me, what are their names? Because if this young man was actually to do what Jesus asked him to do, to sell everything and give it to the poor, I bet the scariest part of that was actually interacting with the poor and handing over to the poor, learning their names, having their stories be told to you, sharing a meal, exactly the things that Jesus would do. And as I was sitting with this text and and processing it over the last few weeks, I was in Phoenix and I was having a meeting via computer at a coffee shop near our house and I was walking home. And as I was walking home, uh, I caught sight of, of the corner of our property. We, we just moved into a new neighborhood in Phoenix. And as I was coming up to the corner, I, I could tell from afar what was going on. There was a, a congregation of some people who don't typically live in homes gathered on our, on our corner. So when I left, Kate was there working on the house. And actually, when I left, there was no door even on the house because she was putting in a new door at that time and redoing the floors and all this kind of crazy stuff that we were doing. But I I get closer and and my wife is having a conversation uh, with this woman and a couple of her friends. And what's happened is their stuff is all kind of gathered on our our front uh, lawn. It's a a rock lawn, it's in Phoenix, but it's like gathered in our rocks. And and she's she's talking to them. And and this woman, I'll I'll say her name is is Elise. Um, Kate and her are having this conversation. And what had happened is they lived in an alley nearby and had just gotten kicked out of the alley. And so they were coming down our street and, and Kate, I don't know, I guess she was standing in the doorway that was not a door and, and they had a conversation. And so she went down and introduced herself and I said, what do you need? And they said, well, uh, we need to put our stuff somewhere. And so she said, well, you can put it here for, for right now, thinking to herself that it would be a couple hours and, and then they'd figure out what needed to happen next. And it was not a couple hours. Uh, they, they kind of like slowly set up uh, a living quarter there on the, on the edge of our property. And so Elise takes her, takes her box and she has just like a mismatch of um, stuff that, that she's kept with her. It's, it's not much, but it, it's some stuff and she likes to have it. And so she set up this thing and, and Kate and I are like, oh my gosh, what are we gonna, what are we gonna do here? Uh, like how, how do we actually help? She can't live here. I mean, it's not, even, it's not even legal for her to live there. It wasn't even legal for her to live in the alley for that matter. And now, now here she is on uh, our, our property. And so- she lets her stay there for a while and, and neighbors are like gawking because um, we've just moved into the neighborhood too. And now, <laughs> and now we, we've set up a little bit of a home on the, the edge of the, the corner of the street. And so as all that's happening, um, we, we tell her, okay, like this can't be a long-term solution. And so she's like, okay, Elise promises that, that she'll get it cleaned up and, and head out. And so uh, we, we leave because we're not staying at this house because there's nothing in it yet. And, and we come back the next morning and she's still there. She stayed there overnight and a couple neighbors come by and, and let us know like, yeah, we called the police and stuff. And she said, Elise said she knew you guys and it was okay. And I was like, okay, that's <laughs> right. Like that's, that's interesting. And it's at this point, as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And I'm thinking about the least and the lost and the last. And I'm thinking about Elise. And it's, I'm just like, dang, my wife lives better sermons than I would ever write. 
because now she's befriended this woman. And so she knows that this has gone a little farther than she anticipated. And so she takes Elise to a hotel and gives her, gets her a week in a hotel right by her house. And, and, and Elise has a couple things that she needed to do. And, and Kate said, if you do these things, I'll get you another week. In, in the hotel and, and Elise did and she even would come by and check in and ride around with Kate and run some errands and, and that sort of thing and she did those things and then this next week that now is, we're into that second week she brings Kate by like a coffee from the gas station or, or a donut um, just the, the, the little that she, that she has and, and can do and they've formed this friendship and, and I tell you all that story because it just is the messiness of entering into relationships with those who the world might deem the least, the last, and the lost, those who, who are on the great reversal. And, and I don't know what that means actually for all of us. Sometimes I'm not even sure what that means with me and it's happening in my own front yard. But I do know this, we have to figure out how to relinquish our relationship with our resources and build relationships with those who maybe aren't like us and who maybe are on the other side of the great reversal that is the kingdom of God. And so what I'm setting up for all of you now is just a space for you to ask God what that is for you. Because I can't answer that. I don't even know what that might look like or mean, but just ask him and I know he'll answer. Come boldly before God and say, God, what does it look like for me to relinquish my relationship with resources and grow relationships with those in the kingdom of God? What does that look like? Teach me, tell me, speak to me. And he will come and he will answer. And my guess is, is it will be hard, but it will be worth it. So do you just take the next few moments and let God have the last word in all of this, spend that time with him and ask him what that might look like in your life. And then I'll, I'll close us in prayer and lead us into communion together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this hard teaching this morning. Would you forgive us forever? idolizing our resources in place of you and other people. And God, would you help us to be kingdom bringers who participate in the double liberation that we would let go, we would relinquish the, the relationship we have with resources to invest in the liberation of those who don't have much. I don't know what that looks like all the time for us, God, but I pray that when we leave this place this morning, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and that we would act in obedience as you lead us and guide us, God. And we would find that on the other side of that, you're setting us free. You're making us more like your son, Jesus. And your kingdom is coming to earth as it is in heaven in all of those little ways as we depend on you because God, in our own effort, it is impossible but with you, it is not. Nothing is impossible with you, God. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, help us to trust you. Remove the barriers that we might put in front of ourselves to live the lives you have for us, God. And may we not be overwhelmed by the magnitude of what the next step might be, but would we just be obedient to a small little step and know that there's grace to take small little steps in following you, God. Just like the disciples, sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't, but would we give up everything to follow you? Whatever it is we hold on to, would we release it to you and follow you with everything that we've got, God? 
lead us to places and people and experiences that we could not imagine on our own. To you be the glory, God. And God, as we sit here this morning, would you just prepare our hearts to come and receive communion together? God, would we remember you as we take the bread that represents your body that was hung on that cross and we dip it in the the wine or the juice that represents your blood on that cross, would we be reminded of the sacrificial generosity of the gift of your life and that it is only by your death and resurrection that we are made whole, that we are made new. And so God, would we come humbly to your table this morning acknowledging that we need you and that that this life that you call us to is not possible without you. So would we come humbly in need of being filled and would you fill us? And would you fill us afresh and send us, God? Send us as your kingdom bringers into this world for your sake. Jesus, we love you so much. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.